This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Later on in this episode, we'll have a special discount offer code just for Discovering Trek listeners. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. A reunion, a confrontation, and an illusion. Episode 8 of Star Trek Discovery pulled out all the stops and was the definition of what being respectful to canon is all about. To a teaser reel unlike anything we have ever seen in Trek, to yet another return of a familiar face, this show just keeps getting better and better. From family bonds to being lost within oneself, the emotional roller coaster of season two continues. So punch your ticket, climb on board, and get ready for an amazing ride. Welcome aboard, everyone. My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome one and all to Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. Star Trek Discovery has so far given us a season two that is remarkable on so many levels, but I really think that this week's episode was the defining moment for this show, and there's no doubt in my mind that the rest of the season is going to be just as amazing as the first half was. As always, this is the premiere podcast for the most in-depth discussion and analysis about the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery entitled, If Memory Serves. From deep within restricted space on Talos 4 to the mess hall on board Discovery, we see crew members dealing with various memories, some of which aren't even their own, and the overwhelming burden of how to handle what they're seeing and feeling. And speaking of overwhelming... If I didn't have this guy to help me steer the course on this podcast, I too would be lost and overwhelmed. His long-range scans are starting to become the stuff of legend, so let's bring him right on in. He's my very special friend, my brother in Trek, and my amazing number one. He is Bill Smith. Bill, welcome back for another week's discussion, and uh, what an episode. Am I right? But the blue flowers are different, Dan. It can't respect canon. Oh, right. Okay, well, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Buddy, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I, I I, think that you and I both had similar reactions when we watched this, just from the opening moments of this episode, where our jaws hit the floor almost instantly, and it progressed that way throughout the rest of the entire episode. Can't wait to dive in on this one. There's a lot to talk about in this episode that is more than just connections to canon, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will first off apologize to everyone. I have uh, a very sore throat. So I got some bronchitis I'm dealing with, similar to what you had a couple of weeks ago, Bill. So sorry for the voice this week. Hopefully next week I'll be back to my normal uh, melodic self, should I say? I don't know. That's opinionated, maybe. Perhaps your mellifluous tones. Thank you. I like that much better. Okay. <laughs> okay so, well, Bill, um, if memory serves, <laughs> get it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is the part where you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us to give us their thoughts on If Memory Serves. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Well, Dan, If Memory Serves, I believe you're correct. On Twitter, we can be found at Discovering Trek, and on Ye Old Book of Faces, 
you know that old-timey place. You can catch up to us at facebook.com slash discoveringtrek. In either place, you can become part of the discussion or leave us comments and questions. Plus, you can also send us a voicemail by going to our website at trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button on the right-hand side. Please do remember, though, that any comments you could leave us might be used in a future episode of Discovering Trek. So send those comments in. We want to hear them. Dan. Black alert. Black alert. From here on in, folks, this episode of Discovering Trek contains spoilers and big ones. So if you haven't watched Season 2, Episode 8 of Star Trek Discovery, stop listening right now. Head on over to CBS All Access or wherever you watch Discovery. Watch the latest episode and then head back over here to Discovering Trek. Failure to do that puts you at risk to find out plot developments and character details for If Memory Serves. Trainees, to the briefing room. Bill, as we gather here in the briefing room to start the discussion for this week's episode, let's get your high-level thoughts like we always do. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Why? I kind of have an idea where you're going, so let's start with you, bud. Well, the broken record continues. I'm going to go with thumbs up this week. I felt like we were watching an extension of The Cage or The Menagerie, whichever one you like. Um, But it, it definitely felt like we were watching a part of that story. Perhaps we're watching the middle act of that story. Um, in a way, which is, which is pretty fascinating, but uh, there's a lot to 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 appreciate and like in addition to love about this episode. I think they're two very different reactions. Absolutely. Uh, as with you, I'm giving another thumbs up. I think we've been thumbs up every episode so far in season two, which is which is yeah. awesome. We even our guests have all uh, chosen thumbs up so far this season, and I'm going to give the same thumbs up. I mean, do do you really have to ask? This episode had it all. Uh, It was a Star Trek fan's ultimate dream. We had Talos IV. We had the Talosians. We had Vina. Uh, We had a respect to continuity and canon unlike anything I've ever seen. This was the purest definition of the respect that the writers have for the history of all of Star Trek. And it was a huge, huge thumbs up for me. So let's talk about some of the key points in the episode. And of course, the first thing we're going to talk about is the first thing that we saw. Unlike anything we have ever seen in Star Trek history before, and that's the teaser. Totally unexpected. Totally unbelievable. It was so, I had a smile a mile wide watching that teaser where the references to the original cage and everything that went by last week on Star Trek. We had the original uh, font uh, from the 60s series. Bill, what did you think? I know that you were pretty excited because you were, you were sending me messages uh, when you were watching it. <laughs> so let me paint a picture for you, okay? I'm sitting down, you know, to watch this. I'm on my sofa. I've got a you know, giant glass of water in my hand. And I click play. And all of a sudden on my TV, you know, I see the, you know, the, the CBS uh, All Access Originals logo and the screen goes black and I'm like going, okay, all right, here we go. And then I see previously on Star Trek, I'm going, is this the, did they put the wrong episode in here? <laughs> yep. What is this? And then we were treated to a recap that was like nothing we've seen before that hit all the high points from the cage to set us up for this episode in a sort of, you know, sort of retro 60s uh, style, hyper stylized way, which I thought was really neat and really effective. I, I, I loved it. 
I thought it set the tone for the rest of, of this episode and, and kind of teased what we were going to see in a way, even though we didn't suspect we were going to see half of those things, Dan. Exactly. I, I got to tell you, um, watching Twitter over the last few days since the episode aired, I've probably read maybe, maybe 200 comments regarding just that opening sequence itself. And I've only seen two people say that they didn't like it, didn't think it was a good idea. And um, unfortunately, th- from the, the two, if I remember correctly, these are the people that, that just will not accept the fact that this, uh, that this series is taking place in the prime universe. So it's one of those situations where it doesn't matter what we tell them, doesn't matter what the writers tell them, they're going to believe what they're going to believe. So they didn't like that they were tying something with the prime universe to whatever universe Discovery is in, which doesn't make any sense because it takes prime. I'm not going to get into that right now. But we'll, <laughs> we'll deal with that another time. I may get up on my soapbox later. I don't know. But it was great. It, I, I mean, I felt like a kid again watching just that opening sequence because it brought me back to when I used to watch the reruns when I was a kid on Channel 56. So I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a great way to tie the stories together. With that f- closing 30 seconds we saw last week, and knowing that we were going to be going to Talos 4 and then have the show open this week with that, it was like fireworks were going off in my house. I thought it was just great. You know, one of one of the the best parts about that whole recap sequence was, you know, it, the the producers and the editors are smart enough to know that that looks nothing like what they're presenting to us. Yep. It looks like it was done 55 years ago because it was practically, mm-hmm. you know, 1964, I think was when the cage was shot. So, you know, and then it cuts to from that, that shot of Jeff Hunter straight to Anson Mount in a similar position. And it's like, it was crafted so well with the way it transitioned that uh, the viewer is forced to go. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of that. You know, it was, it was beautiful the way it was done. Um, I, I have a hard time taking the complaints about the fact that it just doesn't look right. Um, seriously, because it, it fit the story so well. Exactly. I, I totally agree. And talking about how things looked, let's talk about that first scene that we saw when Spock and Michael arrived at Talos 4, even though it didn't look like they were arriving at Talos 4 when they first got there. That black hole special effects sequence, it's the very first thing I put here on discussion points. I actually added in the uh, the teaser just a moment ago at the last moment. That was amazing. That may have been one of the most interesting special effects we have seen so far. And just the fact that it was an illusion was great. The whole scene was great. The whole Spock taking over and slamming the throttle to full and the little fight sequence. I thought it was just, um, I thought it was great. It was a great way to introduce us back again to Talos IV. And when that black hole image dissipated, we saw the planet that looked to me like the planet we saw back in 66. Oh, absolutely. And it was a great reminder that the Talosians are so powerful that even the computer on the shuttle was affected. Right. You know, we know that they could send images from, from Talos to the Enterprise in, in the menagerie, but, you know, they, they are probably perhaps a little more powerful than even we thought by being able to do something like that because the computer's like, yeah, you're all going to die. <laughs> it, it was great. I mean, we'll, we're going to get into the whole uh, Talosians and their powers of illusion and how far they can go based on what we saw later on in the episode. But it was a great, it was a great tense moment that then turned into the most nostalgic of moments for me. And I got to say, I am not lying when I say this. I was so excited, and then I literally had tears in my eyes when they landed on Talos Four because when Michael was getting to walk off the sh- back of the shuttlecraft, I turned to my wife and I said, 
God, I hope they have the same sounds of the atmosphere and the blue plants when she gets out there. And no sooner did I finish that sentence, the doors opened and there was that familiar hum. And then we saw the blue plants that we joked about just a few minutes ago. I went nuts. I went nuts like I did last week when we saw Talos War come up on screen. It's those little details pulling together that history of Star Trek and bringing it on screen to us fans that I think I appreciate the most. And the sounds just, it blew me away, Bill. It was unmistakably Talos 4. You know, some people say, well, there's no mountains in the background. Well, they said they were going to set down in the canyon, you mm-hmm. know, and, and theoretically they did that in the cage too, or in the cage yes. also, I mean. But, you know, clearly we see the shuttlecraft set down below, you know, the the, the natural, you know, plane mm-hmm. of of the, the terrain of Talos. So great. We take, got that taken care of. And then the blue plants, which I joked about, you know, when I came on the podcast uh, initially, but I thought it was a little touch of perfection. The fact that they reacted like a Venus flytrap almost, Mm -hmm. I thought was beautiful. I thought it added a little bit of character to those flowers and told us a little bit more about Talos. You know, these plants and that flying thing seem to be the only thing other than the Talosians that have survived. Correct. Uh, uh, yeah. And I love that little, the little flying bug or whatever it was that flew yeah. around. I also, one of the things that I like most about that scene with the flowers was Michael's little smile, just like her brother's yeah. back in the cage. Though, again, attention to detail. I thought it was great. So we're on Talos 4. The other thing I liked, and it's, and, and it's something that I would expect them to do on the show because they do such a good job. One of the things I appreciated when the shuttlecraft was coming in and landing was it went over a little bit of a, of a lagoon or a, a, a pond of some kind. Just this little added special effect of the shuttle's reflection and the rippling of the water when the engines went over it. Yeah. was something that just stood out to me. It's, something that, it's another little attention to detail that I love with this show. So we're on Talos 4. We've talked about the plants. We've talked about the sounds. We've talked about the illusions that the Talosians uh, gave us. Let's talk about the Talosians themselves because that's what I've been so excited to see. We saw it in the preview last week. I, I loved them. I love the new modern look. It's people. I'm not going to keep saying this. I'm just going to say it one more time. It's the same Talosians. It's 2019. It's not 1966. There can be subtle differences. It's called technology. People. They looked great. I love the kind of modernization of their outfits. They still had that same necklace on. They had the veins. They had the throbbing. I love the added effect of the illumination of the veins when they were Mm -hmm. throbbing during the illusions. It was great to see them. I've seen some people online questioning whether or not the main Telosian that we saw was supposed to be the keeper from the 1966, uh, the cage. I some people are saying that that might be something that they missed if it was supposed to be. I didn't take it that it that it was. They could have different keepers. It could be a different area of the planet. I really enjoyed the Telosians. I I liked what I saw. They seemed. It seemed to me that maybe after Pike's visit in the cage, they've softened a bit on how they're dealing with humans. First of all, they're willing to help Spock, which I was very impressed with and thought that was really cool because I really didn't have a lot of of interaction with him in the, the previous episode. Um, but now they're there to help him because his mind's in such a state. One of the, the, the best parts about the cage and Roddenberry's original pilot was that at the end, we come to an understanding with the Telosians. We set aside this conflict and, and our two races, human and, and Telosian, come to this, this agreement that, you know what, this was not the best way to go about this. And the Telosians are essentially apologetic. 
mm-hmm. mean, I, I, I think it makes sense. And then that that gets carried forth into this episode, and I think that it's 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 the next natural progression of that alien species. I'm not surprised that they were willing to help Spock because I think they realized the damage they did before with Pike. Uh, and plus, I mean. Uh, I thought that it was it was fantastic. It was beautiful. You commented on the way they looked. The way they act seemed very much in keeping with the mm-hmm. end of the cage. The only thing I had to get used to was the fact that there was actually a male actor playing a Telogen, right. which we didn't get in 1964. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I also liked how they, at the beginning, were talking telepathically to Michael, and she made a comment. And so they decided that they would revert to the mm-hmm. ancient ways of communication. I really like that. It, it ties together the whole idea that thousands of centuries ago, they had this nuclear war where they almost destroyed everything, and then they went to uh, focus on their mental powers. So they did communicate. And and I, if, if memory serves, there with some uh, normal uh, vocal communication in the cage. I might yep. be thinking the menagerie, but so I, I did like that tie-in as well. Another great example of, of uh, what they did with this episode. The, the other thing I want to bring up, of course, is, is I, I mentioned this in my long range scan last week. I'm going to give myself a kind of a thumbs up on my long range scan because I said we'd see a little bit of Vina. Yeah, we saw a lot more than a little bit of Vina. She was a central, central character to this episode. And another freak out moment when Burnham turned around and saw a woman near the shuttle, I screamed out, that's got to be Vina. And of course it was. And it was another happy moment for me. I, uh, I, I went on the record, you know, not on the podcast saying we're not going to see Vina. And uh, I didn't think we would, because I don't know how you take a, a character that is as iconic as Vina, because Susan Oliver was in right. um, the end credits of every, almost every episode of TOS, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Arena when she was the green girl. Um, it's an iconic shot uh, in, in, those, in that credit sequence for the original series. And Susan Oliver is just, you know, she's, she's timeless in that role. So it's like, well, who do you cast, Right. And then I'm looking at my TV and I'm like, oh my word, that that's Melissa George. And I am a huge Melissa George fan. And then I step, took a step back and said, you know what? I, I love this casting. I thought that Melissa George approached this role with the utmost respect. I believed it was Vina. You know, I believed the connection that she had with Chris Pike then and now. Um, and I just, I was, I was happy to be wrong. I'm going to say it that way. I was very happy to be wrong. <laughs> I was happy to be wrong in the fact that she she played such a pivotal role. I thought that she would just be like something we'd see in the background and people would be like, oh, that maybe that's Fina. It, it, her character in this episode really made it work because she was that human connection between the Telosians, who I think she's come to respect a great deal. Um, they allowed them – or they allowed her, I, I should say, to bring a piece of pike back when when uh, when they left uh, after the events of the cage and she's there she she talks to michael and and tells him tells her that she should do certain things and don't upset them you don't want to deal with she never used the word punishment but that of course that's what they called it in the cage and i thought that that was a a nice subtle reference to that so i thought she was great we're going to get into the scene with vena and pike uh, later on but the chemistry between anton and melissa was 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 amazing and i was so so happy to see that character back for this episode hopefully we'll see them again oh i hope so um but if we don't i'm i'm happy with the knowledge that you know we got to see more of the telosians and it mattered in the scope of the story uh, as well as vena 
Um, I, I thought it was, uh, now that I understand what they were doing, you know, because last week we had no idea, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a beautiful way to work them into the storyline. And it, it seemed to be far more than just fan service. It actually propelled the plot forward, which was important to me. And what was very important to me also in, in that plot propelling, was that a, was that a good phrase? Um, they were, they were critical in allowing Michael and Spock to be able to get back to discovery. They actually not interfered may not be the right word, but they were critical in getting that illusion of them transporting to the section 31. The Telosians actually helped them escape, which I thought was really uh, something that we might not have expected ever before only seeing that alien race uh, in one episode and then in another uh, kind of flashbacks and such, but it was great. Can't say enough about what the folks uh, at discovery did with the whole Talos for Telosians Vena aspect of this episode. But uh, let's move over to the discovery for a little while, because there were some things going on there this week too, that were a little, um, a little intense, I think is a, is a good way to put it. And that's of course uh, Culber and what he's dealing with. Uh, I'm going to say this. Uh, I saw this coming a mile away, man. We've talked about it both on the show and off the show. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that what was happening with him kind of reminded me about uh, Pet Cemetery and sometimes dead is better. Uh, he's he's in a bad place right now. And um, do you think he's being overly cruel to Stamets? I know a lot of people are talking about um, the why are you being – why are you so angry with me or, or whatever the exact quote was escapes me at the moment, but he's, he's, he's dealing with a lot and he's lashing out. And what do you think about that scene in particular, man? Well, I, I thought it was pretty pivotal. I, I don't think he's being overly cruel to Stamets because he's not trying to be overly cruel to Stamets. He's angry and he's in chaos and he's resentful of a lot of things. Like you said, um, you know, perhaps it would have been better to just still be dead, but here he is now and he doesn't know who he is anymore. Um, which means nobody else around him knows how to deal with him either. You know, Paul Stamets is just trying to, to do what he can as, as someone who loves him to help him acclimate. And the problem is that Hugh doesn't know what acclimation means at this point because everything has changed. So Mm -hmm. I don't think he's being overly cruel. I think he's got a rage inside him that he needs to work out. And uh, ultimately I think this chaos continues until he finds a way to, um, put himself back together mentally and however that however that occurs before the point where where Hugh stormed out of of the quarters it was very very subtle um acting by um Anthony Rapp thank you Anthony sorry I should know that and I do know that just you know whatever it's the um, drugs talking it is the drugs talking when they were sitting there and he was having the soup and it's his favorite soup, he has no connection to anything. He knows it's his favorite. He has memories of it as being his favorite. But as he said, there's no connection. And then he said, there's no connection with anything. And you could kind of see ever so slightly Stamets' shoulders just drop a little and that yeah. furrowed brow uh, look that he had. And, and I, I felt so bad for him. Uh before even that scene, I'm kind of going backwards in time here. We saw, we saw Tyler walking down the corridor, and you saw the reaction that that Culber had. And of course, that brings us later on in the episode to the fight scene uh, in the mess hall. What an amazing and emotional uh, few minutes of this episode with that fight scene between the two, because. I think a lot of people may be looking at it as this was something that Culber had to do. Of course, we saw Saru react that way, which totally surprised me, but no ganglia. So, you know, Um, 
but I think it was something that was needed for Ash as well. Uh, what did you think about it? I got a couple things I'll say afterwards, um, but what did you think about the fight scene? Because I think this scene actually might have more tie into the title of If Memory Serves than maybe the whole Giorgio, excuse me, the whole uh, Burnham Spock part of the episode. I think they're I think they're all connected, but I think you're right. Actually, I think that this is one of the most important scenes in the episode. I think that well, I tweeted this out you know, this past weekend, and uh, uh, hats off to Wilson Cruz because he was totally badass in this scene. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. uh, Culber is a healer. Culber's a doctor. You know, Culber's not the guy who comes down and gets in your face and says, "Bring him out." Yeah, that is the best line in the entire episode. Quite frankly, when he's sitting there, on his neck. Yeah. I mean, you know that he just wants to rage against Tyler, Mm -hmm. Voke, whatever gets in his way, because he's got all this rage inside of him and he doesn't know what to do with it. I thought it was a gripping scene and this was less about a fight than it was about rage, because I Mm -hmm. think there's a big difference. I think that Culber has to get this out because it's just poisoning him at this point. And he may have found uh, kind of a, a really bizarre ally in Tyler in a way, which I, I find really fascinating. I absolutely agree with that. And that was the point that I was going to bring up that you said it wasn't much of a fight. There weren't a whole lot of fisticuffs going on. There was no. a lot of grabbing and a little throwing and pushing and, and a couple some great defensive moves by Tyler. I got to say when, when he was actually trying to, to punch at him, but then they kind of both kind of stopped and held each other. And, and I think the, the lines of this, the best lines of this episode, Culber looks right at Ash and says, I don't know who I am anymore. And Ash says, look who you're talking to. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant quotes in that episode because they're both going through the same thing when you think about it. Um, So I thought that was a great tie-in. And I think because of this scene, like you just said, Hugh may have found an ally in the most odd of places in Ash Tyler. So I thought that I thought it was a, a great. Uh, I think this was um, we haven't seen him enough because he hasn't been in too many episodes. But this was definitely the best that we've seen with Wilson, and I can't wait to see more. But what's next for Hugh? What do you think, Bill? What do you think's next for him? Um, I'm going to save some of this because it's going to creep in on my long range scan a little bit. But you know, this rage has to go somewhere. You know, uh, at some point, this character has to find some harmony in his life, and I don't know what that involves. Um, does he still continue to be a doctor? Does he still continue to be, um, uh, the partner to Paul Stamets? Um, mm. uh, does his life change radically? We don't know. And I think that's really the most interesting thing about the development of this character at this point is, um, no one knows, you know, that there's no box for Hugh Culber, which I think is fascinating. And it's, it's interesting to see a Star Trek character in this sort of quandary because it's not the kind of thing we usually see in a, in a Starfleet character when it's depicted. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, and and I have asked myself, will he still be able to continue practicing medicine? If he's got this non-emotional detachment to everything and he's got all this rage inside, uh, you got to wonder would Pike or whoever is in command of the, of, of the enterprise of discovery, um, will he not allow him to practice medicine until he is quote unquote fixed? Time will tell. Of course, in this episode also, Bill, we got to see some more of section 31 and I got to say, I've had more and more questions popping into my mind over the last few weeks regarding Section 31. I teased it a little bit last week that, gosh, it seems like everybody knows about Section 31 in this time period, uh, 10 years before TOS. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. 
right now, they seem to be no, well-known by more than what we would normally think based on what we saw in Deep Space Nine. Are they kind of like the Starfleet police right now? Yes. Um, if, if for no other reason, then they actually have a badge. Um, True. I, I think that this Section 31 is different because than the one we see eventually in Deep Space Nine because they are, uh, you know, they operate in the shadows, but they may not necessarily be a shadow organization the way they are in Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. I think that between Discovery and the forthcoming Section 31 series, there will be a series of events that forces them to essentially become a, an, an organization that doesn't exist, but yet still operates. Um, right. They are not that now. I think they are going to get there. And I think that that's the thing that people are having to get used to. Yeah. Oh, section 31, super secret. Well, yeah, in a way they are, but people know they exist right now. And I think at some point they're going to go, well, I am going to use loose air quotes, go away. Right. I found it very interesting. And the reason that I brought up whether they're the Starfleet police is, is, Discovery disobeyed their orders, and now they're all fugitives. And I took that as like, wow, so Section 31 is going to be telling somebody that Discovery was bad, and now they're all going to be, as as uh, uh, who put it, the most wanted ship in the Federation. Was that Saru who said that? Um, well, but keep in mind, too, that Section 31 is acting you know, from the direction of Starfleet Command. Mm-hmm. And they haven't just violated Section 31. They've violated the orders of the Admiralty and Starfleet Code by going to Talos 4. So there's right. a variety of things for which they could be fugitives, not just disobeying Section 31. Sure. It makes me think also, on a little side note, they visited Talos 4 on Discovery. But yet in in the Menagerie, we see that the Enterprise was the only starship to ever visit Talos Four, so you also have to think of: Will Section Thirty One bury what happened here and hide it away, so that by the time that that document is produced, it's only showing that the Enterprise was the only one that sh- that went to Talos Four? Don't know. Te- technically, they still are because they never beam down in True. in the Menagerie. When that little red folder is open, it said that uh, you know Pike and Spock are called out by name for having mm-hmm. visited Talos Four. And technically, the Enterprise is the only Earth ship that visited. That's still true um, mm-hmm. because they didn't necessarily go back to the planet. I like that idea. I think that's a good way to do it. Okay, good. Done. Okay, so now cannon, Bill. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I do what I can. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what. The one other thing, or a couple other things with Section 31. I thought, I talked about it a moment ago, it was an awesome deception by the Telosians at the end of this episode. I'm sure all... Th- all hardcore fans like us realized the deception was going on when Burnham and Spock beamed in, yet it was the Telosian illusion sound as they were beaming in. I liked that little subtle reference. I thought it was great. I also found Giorgio's comments about er just eradicating the Telosians in the mirror universe. That was a little eerie. Uh, That was a little scary. (laughs) Or did she? Hmm. Why do you say that? They're, they're Telosians. Maybe she only thinks she eradicated them. Nice. That's right. Sort of like the phaser cannon from the cage. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And they, they, they can project it whatever they want to, including a black hole where their planet should be. <laughs> um, why wouldn't they make the, the empress of the Terran Empire believe that uh, she'd killed them all? That's a great, great thought. I had not thought of that, man. Good job. Um, I definitely think she's setting Leland up to get killed or fail 
arrested take you know she wants to be in charge of section 31 and just the little things that as she was walking away from him at the end of that uh scene on board the section 31 ship uh that uh she, he's gonna have a lot to answer for i thought it was great she's devious he's a patsy and he just doesn't know it yet mm-hmm. i'm kind of hope he still stays around and winds up in a lesser role with her in command, because I think that'd be a great dynamic for a section 31 series. Um, but, uh, that would add some drama that I think would be fantastic to watch. But, um, yeah, he's, he may be in command now, but, uh, <laughs> as the admirals, uh, sort of telegraphed, um, they're kind of interested in what Giorgio thinks and they may want her in that role before too long. Right. Oh, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was talking to <laughs> captain Giorgio. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, Speaking of drama, as you mentioned drama just a second ago, Bill, let's talk about what may have been the most dramatic moment uh, of of this episode. We finally got to see the memory that caused the split between Spock and Burnham. It was heartbreaking to watch. It really was. And that's a credit to Ethan and to Sonequa and to young Spock, Liam Hughes, and young Burnham, Arista uh, Aaron. I believe is how you pronounce her last name. All four people did a a stellar job with the flashback and the changing of older character to younger character and back and forth. But I got a question Hmm. and I don't believe this, but I just want to post it out there. Do you think that what has happened to Michael and Spock over the years is an overreaction based on what that memory was? No. Okay. I don't think so either, but I have seen people say that online. Um, Damage that can be done to a child by the simplest of things can take a lifetime to overcome. And I had no problem with with what Michael did. Zero. She had to do that to protect Spock and her parents. And unfortunately, she had to do it that way. She said when she came out of the memory uh, on Talos 4 that she wished she could have done it differently, but I really don't think she would have been able to. Um, of course, when you're that age, you don't really have you know, the ability to, to process all the different possibilities, but man, that was tough still. It really was. I, I literally had tears running down my face as that scene was occurring um, because it just it connects all too well with me uh, for reasons we're going to talk about a little later on, but... Um, I think the people critical of that moment haven't had that experience. Um, and I think that there are far too many people in today's world that have, especially when you take a child that is of, of two worlds of Vulcan and of earth, uh, in, in his heritage and is still trying to find a, a delicate balance between them. I can absolutely see where those words would harm him for, for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch. And I think that Burnham, young Burnham knew she had to be intentionally hurtful on purpose after having built a relationship with Spock to, to get him to go away. I, I think she knew exactly what she was doing at that point. I don't think she was wrong. And I certainly don't think that it's an overreaction by any means. Half breed. We've heard that a couple of times in the yeah. original series over the course of watching all the episodes and it didn't, it, it's never seemed to sting as much as it did when she said it. Don't you think? I, no, I agree with you. I just, you know, what Kirk uses it in, um, 
Oh God! This side of paradise. That. Yeah, thank you. I, mm-hmm. that's a, I'm like paradise, paradise. Take, <laughs> take me down to Paradise City. No, that's Star Trek Five. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, you know we hear it several times. You know, uh, even McCoy in, in some of his banter with Spock, you know, mm-hmm. uses, we'll, we'll bring the phrase "half breed" into play. But it was certainly far more injurious this time than than perhaps any other because Spock was you know still in his formative years and still trying to discover that balance before he'd fully embraced logic. Yes. And on that point, I, I, I gotta say that I, I thought Spock was kind of being a little bit of a jerk about it when he was explaining to Burnham that, um, he, uh, he, that moment he thanked her for because it allowed him to dive into logic. Um, and I can't help agree that that's what sets him to be the character he is and he becomes, but, it's amazing that some of the worst things that happen can uh, can can bring about uh, things later on in life that might not be all that bad. I will say one thing, though. Hmm. I have no doubt that they will reconcile before all is said and done at the end of the season. Do you agree with that? I do. I, I think they have to. Um, you know, his, his talking to Michael at that point kind of reminded me of Zachary Quinto's Spock in Star Trek 2009 when he's appearing before the, the Vulcan Science Council. And it's like, live long and prosper. Like essentially <laughs> go F yourself, mm-hmm. you know, with, with words that, that mean something quite different. Yeah. Right. I thought he was, uh, he was angry, but the Spock is off his emotional balance right now. So I'm, I understand it and I'm okay with it. Well, we have reached the, the moment of discovering Trek where we take a moment to pause and reflect on those we've lost in this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. It's the somber part of our show but we feel it's the least we can do for those that have paid the ultimate price. We like to call it the red shirt roll call. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. Well, Bill, uh, I'm going to come right out and say that we had, oh, shocker, another week of nothing to report for the red shirt roll call. But after we saw this week, there is something that we should consider dead and gone. Shouldn't we? You know, Dan, there is. And normally we like to pour one out, um, at this particular moment for things that, that pass away. But in this case, I really don't care. Um, because we're going to say goodbye to the, the the, came, the the claims of canonicity for all of the gatekeeping fans out there. And by gatekeeping mm. fans, I mean those who tell you why and how you should love Star Trek, which is patently wrong. I'm sure all of them had their heads explode this week when we stopped at Talos 4, saw some blue flowers, saw Talosians, met Vina, had some projections, had a little Pike Vina moment, which I thought was beautiful. Um... Uh, and so well acted, by the way. We didn't touch on that earlier, but man, what a great yeah. scene that was. Awesome um, scene. So so this week, we say goodbye to the exploding heads of all the gatekeepers and canonistas all over planet Earth, Dan. It's a, uh, boy, this is a fun one. I'm so glad to have this one happen. Um, I can't wait for their heads to continue to explode because uh, at this point, it's a choice. I don't think I've ever seen you smiling so much when we're recording. Usually when we're recording, you don't smile because you have to look at me. You got to smile a mile wide, buddy, and I appreciate it. And you know what? We're not just going to raise a glass. We're going to raise a case of Synthahol to say goodbye to this one this week, my friend. It's time to bury those ridiculous notions. Take care. Bye-bye in this week's 
redshirt roll call. This week's episode is brought to you by Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. You know, as always, we love to talk about Fansets and their amazing line of pin products and collectibles because, well, they truly are the best in the industry. Whenever you place an order at Fansets.com, I can tell you personally that you can be confident you're going to get the best products, the best prices, and hands down, the best customer service around. Lou, John, and everybody on the Fansets team shares the same passion for Star Trek as you and I do, and truly it shows with every pin they release. New Star Trek pins are being released twice a month now, and this month we've already seen the release of Mirror Landry from Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, Team Landry, baby. And later this week, as this episode drops, Tom Paris from Voyager will be available to add to your collection. Whether it's Lieutenant or Ensign remains to be seen. I'm going to guess Lieutenant. So do yourself a favor and head on over to thefansets.com, put a bunch of pins and maybe even some accessories into your shopping cart, and at checkout, be sure to enter this week's exclusive checkout code, VINA. That's V-I-N-A in all capital letters. If you use that code, you're going to get 15% off your entire order at fansets.com. And this code is going to be available to use until Sunday, March 17th, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. I'm going with Lieutenant, too. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Fair enough. Tom Paris. Yes. Uh, in addition to those two beautiful pins that you mentioned, Bill, Fansets has pins for every series of Star Trek and even many of the movies. And as a matter of fact, they are closing in on having 200 pins just for the Star Trek universe. They also have other genres like DC and Harry Potter. And they just announced yesterday on Twitter that the Big Bang Theory pins are going to be coming out pretty soon. Bazinga. Uh, but speaking of Harry Potter that I just mentioned, a supersized pin of everyone's favorite giant spider, Aragog, is available to add to your collection. And fans of the extremely popular Irwin Allen series of pins can already get the SSRN Seaview from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and the Jupiter 2 from Lost in Space. And coming soon for that collection will be the Flying Sub from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and the first micro-crew character, Bill, the B-9 Robot. Danger, Will Smith! Danger! Yes, in addition, coming in the summer of 2019... Fansets will be releasing their new reimagined macro fleet line of ship pins, starting with the TOS Enterprise NCC-1701. Fansets, we are Star Trek. And as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being the exclusive sponsor of Discovering Trek. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most... Human. Star Trek has always been a reflection of our times, and in this segment, we'll take a look at what this episode helps us discover about humanity, or perhaps even what it tells us about ourselves. And Bill, let's start with you, my friend. Uh, what did you get for this week? Well, yeah, this one's a tough one. We talked a little bit mm -hmm. ago about the scene between uh, young Michael Burnham and young Spock, where uh, the edits with... Uh, current versions of Burnham and Spock were inter interspersed regarding um, their fallout and, and the pain. And it, it brings me to this. Children are sponges. You know, words aren't meant to hurt. And kids absorb every single thing you say to them, whether it's positive or negative, or in this case, incredibly hurtful. And I, I suppose the people who, who can't fathom that particular moment on how that could be so injurious, like I said earlier haven't had those particular experiences. It's a scene that resonated with me, unfortunately, all too well. 
um, as somebody who's had that experience as a child from a loved one. And unfortunately from a parent, I can recall being called all kinds of things that I cannot repeat on this podcast without bleeping or without tagging this episode as explicit because they were that horrible and that disgusting. And those are the kinds of things that have stayed with me every day, every moment of my life, uh, even as an adult, as someone who's almost 50 years old. It's, It's the kind of thing you don't really ever come back from. You just find a way to deal with and move forward because it affects every aspect of your life as you're growing up. So unfortunately, I can understand why Spock was injured so well because I felt that way. And there are times where I wish that, like Spock, I could devote myself completely to logic. But unfortunately, that would deprive me of the experience of being human. And that's really the toughest part of it all. Being human sucks sometimes. And there are times when we have to deal with it as best we can. And unfortunately, uh, Spock has to as well. You know, isn't it odd that sometimes we see that protecting the ones we love the most can mean hurting them in ways we can never imagine. In addition to Ethan and and Liam Hughes and and Arista, I got to give huge credit to Sonequa Martin-Green for her flashback scenes that we saw in this episode of what caused the rift between her and Spock. You could feel that pain she was going through. You could see it on her face. And the moment was played brilliantly by all of the actors. You know, Michael knew she had to leave to protect the family, And when she realized that Spock just wasn't going to let her go, she did what she had to do. And that, unfortunately, was stab him directly in the heart that would forever change his life. That's what being human is all about. Protecting those we care for the most, even when it's done in the ways that are the worst things we could think of. But what do we do when we don't know how to process those feelings anymore? You know, back on Discovery, Culber's lost, he's angry, and he's looking for answers. We see Stamets projecting that love that he has for Hugh to try and help him, be, and he's rejected, and, and, and we, don't, we don't know why. Coming back from the dead is something new for all of us, and, and if this is what happens, I, I might prefer to stay dead, as I mentioned earlier with the whole Pet cemetery uh, reference. But in both instances, on Vulcan and on Discovery, we have the foundation of our humanity. Love. It drives everything. And for better or for worse, it should never change. Commendation, palm leaf of Axanar Peace Mission, Grand Kite Order of Tactics, Class of Excellence, Frenteris Ribbon of Commendation. Okay, Bill, so... Now that we've gone through the humanity aspect, let's start to give away some awards like we like to do every single week. It's time for Starfleet Commendations. What'd you pick and why'd you pick? You're up first, so pick. Well, you know, (laughs) thank you. Well, normally we limit ourselves to three. I am not limiting myself to three this week. Uh, I can't do it. It's not possible. I have lots of Starfleet Commendations to spread around. And I have to start first and foremost with Wilson Cruz. I I said on Twitter I was going to hand one out to him, and I absolutely have to. He was just phenomenal this week. That scene in the mess hall was probably one of my favorite scenes in all of Discovery so far. He had a a gravitas and and a seriousness 
and a rage that was being displayed on screen that's not like nothing we've ever seen before. It was done exceptionally well. Um, I, I loved every moment of it. So Wilson, thank you so much. That was that was beautiful. Uh, also, Anthony Rapp. Um, you know, Stamets is at a at a difficult point right now, and he doesn't know what to do. And I thought that 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 helplessness was portrayed exceedingly well from Anthony. Um, and then I, I have two people and three commendations between them. So Anson Mount, Melissa George, and Anson Mount and Melissa George. Because individually, they were nothing short of amazing. Together, that scene where Vina presents herself to Pike for the first time and he stumbles was an amazing, amazing moment. Um, That whole scene was... uh, I didn't think I was looking at Anson Mount and Melissa George. I saw Pike and Vina, and it carried me right back to the original Star Trek. You know, these are characters that are part of the original canon of Star Trek, and it was absolutely believable, and it was beautiful. Um, There's also, uh, I have to give a nod to sound design. I mean, they did a killer job replicating all of the sounds from the original Star Trek, uh, from, you know, the, the Talos planet, and the the hum and the howling winds to the flowers to the materialization of the Telosians, everything was just spot on. In addition to all the other great work they do that's original, these callbacks were nothing short of amazing. And then lastly, I have to tip my hat to Scott Gamzon, who is the editor of this episode of Star Trek Discovery, because that stylized recap that he did at the very beginning was nothing more than love and Star Trek mixed into one. It's got to be pretty amazing when a fan gets to cut something like that together in an official episode of Star Trek, because we've never seen it before. And I can only imagine how that must have felt. I know it looked amazing and it set the tone for what was a pretty fantastic episode, Dan. Absolutely agree. And it's kind of funny with your Starfleet combinations. When I list off mine, it it might sound like a little bit of a broken record, which is kind of funny. (laughs) First of all, (laughs) I am going to give my first commendation to that opening sequence. As you just stated, you know, I was instantly pulled back to my childhood when I used to watch the menagerie on channel 56 WLVI in Boston, Massachusetts, when I lived in Nashua growing up, what an ingenious way to set up the story for this week's episode. While at the same time, as we've talked about, in my opinion, giving a middle finger to all of those who think discovery is in an alternate timeline or parallel universe, parallel parallel, or whatever the hell else they think, because this basically threw that out the window. It's been explained over and over and over by the very people who make the show that this is prime universe and tying the events into the cage hopefully will be the final straw to end those ridiculous arguments. Although I have a feeling it won't because they just don't give up anyway. That's number one. Number two, like you, I got to give a Starfleet combination to the sound department, the sounds of Talos four, the sounds of the Telosians and the illusions Everything was exactly as I remembered it from over 50 years ago. The attention to detail continues to amaze me on this show. And what the sound folks were able to do with Talos 4 and the Telosians was just icing on the cake for everything that I love about Star Trek. Also, Wilson Cruz, uh, when we first saw Hugh Culber, he was happy, he was in love, and he was sure of himself. Now we see someone who was lost who's angry and has no idea who he is anymore. That transformation is not easy, I'm sure. Yet, Wilson, you do it with ease 
And that's a credit to what you do as an actor, sir. The scene in the mess hall was fantastic. And we all saw that rage, the fear, the hopelessness, and the longing to understand in your eyes. Well done, Wilson. And finally, again, for I think the seventh or eighth week this season, Anson Mount, you were able to bring out your inner Jeffrey Hunter in this episode, Anson, while at the same time maintaining your own portrayal of Christopher Pike. And that scene that Bill just talked about where Vina just shows up in your ready room and you stumble, the emotion is raw, it is real, it was awesome, and every week you show why you deserve your own Captain Pike TV series. Long Range Scan of Planet Complete. Well, Bill, we are here at Long Range Scans. Uh, what's next for Discovery? What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen further on down the season? And I got to tell you, normally I find myself having a hard time with the humanity section here on Discovering Trek. But this week, this one has stumped me. I have no idea what to expect next. I really am at a loss because we're at a point in the season where we just don't know what's going to happen. I guess the only thing that I can say that I'd like to see as a long-range scan is that hopefully we see the Telosians at least once more this season. Then from that point, we won't see them until the events of the Menagerie. But I guess that's my complicated way of saying I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're honest. I appreciate that about you. (laughs) (laughs) What do you got, man? Well, I'm going to... I'm going to make a bold prediction here. You know, I've done this a couple of times. Uh, I'm usually wrong, but every now and then I get one right. Yes, I'm still going to mention that I got one right this season um, because I'm still ahead of you. Woo! Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was kind of right last week, but that's okay. Uh, no, you weren't. Uh, so okay. <laughs> um, we talked a lot about Hugh Culber this episode because uh, that that storyline is is essential in, in this storytelling and how he's in chaos, And I think he's going to find a way out of that chaos. And I think he's going to do it with the help of a familiar Vulcan. I think that Spock is going to find a way to help Culber make sense of the chaos this season on Discovery and get him closer to the Culber we know. He'll still be different, but I think that it's going to take some influence from Spock to help him achieve some of that. That's my my long-range scan. I like that better than mine, so we'll take it. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> so we are now at the, we have passed the halfway point of the season, Bill. We're eight episodes in. Um, actually, was seven and a half? I don't even, I don't even know. Math is hard, as you know. Um, but second half of the season, uh, uh, we have so many things to look forward to because we don't know what to expect. And I think that's what makes it most exciting. So uh, what can we uh, look forward to next week, bud? Well, Dan, next week, we're going to consider the ninth episode of Discovery's second season titled Project Daedalus. The Discovery is a wanted starship. Section 31 headquarters looks ominous. And will we finally see what's going on with Arian? Because it looks like she's going to kick some ass. Just Mm. saying. Until then, of course, remember, you can subscribe to Discovering Check by searching for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or by heading on over to discoveringtrek.com. Plus, now you can support Discovering Trek and the Trek Geeks Network of Podcasts by subscribing to bonus content via Patreon. Get access to our Carpool Conversations videos and other exclusive content. See the first of our annual supporters pins from Fansets, and check out our exclusive Podfleet t-shirt design along with so many other perks, Dan. 
Yes, and speaking of Patreon, Bill, we want to take a moment to recognize uh, our our growing list of amazing producers for Discovering Trek. We are so thankful for your support to everyone, including Ken Tripp, Casey Shafsky, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Lionel Marchand, Craig Ewing, Sean O'Halloran, Chris Trebuzio, Eric Extreme, Norman Lau, Mike Bovia, Patrick Escudero, Charlie Mulvey, Scott Vashon, and Matt McGonigal. Thank you so much for all your support, people, and for being producers here of Discovering Trek. If you would like to become a producer of Discovering Trek or even get access to the raw audio for these Discovering Trek episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks. Well, folks, that's going to do it for our discussion on If Memory Serves. We could keep going on and on, but you don't want to listen to our voices for the rest of the day. So hit us up on Facebook and Twitter to let us know what you thought about the episode and, and about Discovering Trek as well. We want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to listen to us talk about this amazing new chapter in the Star Trek universe. And we look forward to sitting down again next week to talk about Episode 9 and Project Daedalus. Until then... Here are some words of wisdom from Khan Noonien Singh. Improve a mechanical device and you may double productivity. But improve man, you gain a thousandfold. And until next week, never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com.